Okay, freaks, this is the guide to your psychopath. This podcast is not about me telling you how you're fucked up. I'm here to learn about your past and how it affects your decision making. I've been studying people for a long time now, but I've never asked them about how their mind goes through the process. I want to read your guide. I want to know how you think and feel. This will not be edited to take snippets out of context, but I believe everyone will benefit from hearing all of the conversation. Learning your guide will make it better for me to understand you. Welcome to the Guide to Your Psychopath. Uh, so today I have a friend uh, who I've talked to for uh, a little while. Uh, every time I have a conversation with you, it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, we go down the rabbit hole pretty good about just different subjects anything from music to life events to <laughs> even work uh and it's uh i've i'm actually quite excited to get you on here so that i we could get your perspective on just a lot of things um but first of all i'd like to start off with uh what do you when is your uh, what is your earliest uh memory that you have well, one problem I have is a really horrible memory. <laughs> there's uh, there's bits and pieces of when I was a kid, uh, Oklahoma, Germany. When I was growing up, my dad was in the army. So, well, what came but, first, Oklahoma or Germany? Uh, well, I was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, my earliest memories would be uh, Wiesbaden, in Germany. I almost drowned in a pool there. I remember that part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Oklahoma was a bit after that, but yeah. So, Germany, do you remember, uh, uh, like, anything about the people in Germany or anything like that? The only real memories I have, like I said, I almost drowned in a pool. There was a bunch of teenage kids swimming in a pool, and they taught me how to get in the pool, and I didn't know how to swim. Uh. Almost almost drowned that day. Uh, I remember that we lived in an apartment, and it was uh, upstairs from a uh, clockmaker. Uh Traditional German cuckoo clocks and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I remember that much, but not much else to be honest with you. Uh, and, and so you, you guys went back. Your dad was in the military. Mm-hmm. Do you know where your dad was born? My dad was born in uh, Croyle, Croyle, Texas. Croyle, Texas. Yeah. And what about your mom? My mom was born in uh, Tennessee in uh, uh, La Follette, La Follette, a small town outside of Knoxville. Now you were born in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky. Fort Campbell. Now, when you guys went uh, back, came back from Germany, where did you guys end up at? Mm. Honestly, the dates and in order of residence. You know, I lived a lot of different places, so yeah. I don't really recall exactly what was what order things were in. Yeah. But you were what's called a military brat. Oh, definitely. Yeah, for or at least the early part of my life, anyways. My dad uh, after Vietnam. My dad. Uh, he had received a field commission. He was a senior enlisted man. Then uh, uh, he received a field commission and became an officer. And then at the end of the war, they had a reduction in force or a RIF. And he was basically offered, he was either to return as an enlisted person or or uh, be released as an officer and receive a, uh, basically a bonus for getting out. And he chose to do that. So yeah. uh, that would have been early 70s, 72, 73, something like that. So... Was it good times in the household, or? Yeah, my, my childhood, I guess, was mostly good, at least the earlier part. My dad was a bit of an alcoholic, and unfortunately, 
in the later years, things got a little rough, and my mother and father separated when I was probably 10. I was about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wound up living with my mother most of the time after that. And is that where you uh, ended up living in a not-so-good neighborhood? When uh, your yeah. mother split up with your dad? When I was living with my mother, of course, she's a, a single woman back in the, the 70s. This is really uh, hard. Yeah, it wasn't easy. Uh, she worked as a waitress at a little restaurant in Fort Worth called Massey's, which is a real popular little uh Almost a mom and pop type establishment, but it had been around forever and famous for chicken fried steak. <laughs> so she worked double shifts there and uh, managed to keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. Yeah. Uh, without any kind of, a, she never refused to take any kind of assistance or you know welfare or anything like that. She didn't feel she needed it. So. There was a big, you know, I don't know. To me. Um, when I when I look at like the 1950s and stuff like that, you look at the pride that people have at I'm making it on my own and yep. stuff like that, and receiving some kind of assistance. It's kind of like you were being held back or you know being looked down upon uh, by the community. Maybe, right? Maybe you felt like you failed. Yeah, maybe if you couldn't take care of yourself. You know, there's one thing to get help. You know, and people nobody was against helping anybody. Uh, good normal people conservatives whatever i mean good people want to help each other but but you help people in times of need to get them back to where they need to be so that they can be productive and support themselves because yeah. there's a certain amount of uh, pride and everything and you know having uh taking care of yourself and in your own business and not having to depend on somebody else to do that for you now is so, was it that way when you guys lived in that neighborhood was it uh, like the community tried to help each other or that you guys uh didn't mess with each other, right? You know, uh, the neighborhood I lived in uh, for the most longest time there in Fort Worth, it was on the south side. Uh, back then, things were quite segregated. Uh, the neighborhood I lived in was 99% Hispanic, uh, specifically Mexican. I don't really know any South Americans, but um, on the, the main street that separated our neighborhood from the one over, and then that next neighborhood was all African American. And then if you went east, uh, that's where the middle-income white neighborhoods, and then beyond that, you got into the wealthy neighborhoods, mostly white people, of course. Um, What was unusual, because I was growing up in a Mexican neighborhood, a big thing at the time was desegregation. And it was actually a law that they were trying to, to mix up uh, the races in the schools and stuff and get people together which is a good way to avoid a lot of or get rid of a lot of uh, racism because racism a lot of it is simply ignorance people don't understand each other don't know each other so they assume the worst but when you spend time with people the idea was to uh, get people to work together get to know each other and not have those issues no so anyways being in the neighborhood I was in they stuck me on a bus and shipped me off to the rich kid school on the other side of town so oh. because I was in that demographic there uh, unfortunately I was one of maybe eight white kids like myself who got shipped over to this wealthy school and we were probably the as a result we were probably the lowest <laughs> social order if you will because uh most of the kids there, you know, their uh, parents were buying them BMWs for their 16th birthday, and uh, I had a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, yeah, they wore penny loafers and uh, eyes eye t-shirts, and I wore kids, and 
whatever Kmart had on sale. So yeah, I didn't uh, didn't fit in well with most of those people. So the uh, my Hispanic friends, the people that uh, from my neighborhood, they got along fine because they had there was enough of them. They had their own little group and didn't have any issues. The same thing with uh, your African American. Guys. You couldn't you couldn't hang around with the kids from your neighborhood. Most from my neighborhood, uh, well, I could. I mean, there wasn't very many from my neighborhood specifically there. Oh. Uh, I had did have friends among some of the the wealthy kids, and that they weren't all a holes. <laughs> there were some good ones. Yeah, uh, but for the most part, we were generally ostracized, if you will, or shunned because we weren't part of their little social order. So, yeah, so it was kind of it was kind of rough in a way. Yeah. Now, getting into high school and stuff like that, and everybody had their own cliques and stuff like that, did you get into any kind of trouble, or did you make your way through just fine, or come out on top? No real trouble other than getting my ass kicked by a Golden Gloves boxer once, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I managed to somehow get in the middle of a fight with a guy named Daniel Campos, who was a a pretty good boxer, and... uh, yeah, you know, little incidents like that. You know, little gas station across the street from the high school. After high school, you go up and meet there, and uh, yeah, you had a few little incidents. Nothing serious. It, was it you that caused the problem, or you just ended up being bystander? Or? I think it was a friend of mine, actually, a guy named Raymond Simmons, that had gotten in some kind of a disagreement or argument with this guy, and I stuck my nose in it trying to help break it up wound up getting in a fight so <laughs> that's what you get for being a good Samaritan I guess yeah, yeah. and then of course uh, and the guy was a golden gloves oh yeah he was a very very good boxer it didn't work out well for him actually that's kind of funny I was getting my ass whooped but there was one point there where he was swinging a nice right and I ducked and right behind me he was behind the gas station there was a, a breaker box Ooh. And he landed, of course, no gloves or anything. He landed right on that and busted his hand. So he actually suffered pretty bad from that because his coach and everybody, you know, were quite irritated with him for that whole deal. So, yeah. <laughs> I wound up with a couple black eyes and he wound up with a busted hand. So in the end, it was all good. We made friends <laughs> it was all even. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys got along afterwards? Oh, yeah. 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 You know how things like that. You know, back then, that was the one thing that's one of the major differences, in my opinion. Kids back then, you you got into a disagreement, you threw a few punches, and then shook hands, and usually became friends afterwards. Most of the time, you know, nowadays somebody's likely to stab you or shoot you. So <laughs> probably a little different now than it was in those days. Yeah. Now you you told me that you got into music at around that time, right? I started playing guitar when I was about ten. Uh, the house we were staying at, there was right next door. There was a place called B and E Music. It was uh, two brothers that had a little. It was actually a house, but they had a, a big living room area that they used as a uh, studio to to uh, teach guitar and all that. Uh, Bill, uh, uh, I won't say Bill Luttrell, but uh, he was uh, he was a very very good uh, like swing jazz player and, and uh, uh, teacher. And so I went over there, took a few lessons. It didn't last very long because. Uh, being a young kid, all I wanted to do was play rock and roll and everything. I didn't understand the value of learning music as a language, so to speak. You know, yeah. all the the actual learning part of it. So most of my skills I developed by myself. You know, from learning from ear, that sort of thing. But, that, that's pretty cool. Did you uh, immerse yourself into that uh, genre or into that uh, time or that music? Well, I spent a lot of time playing guitar. That's 
the one thing with guitar, if you're going to be any good at it, usually people start very young and they usually spend a tremendous amount of time practicing. Mm -hmm. And I did. I played a lot of guitar. Used to have a had little bands, you know, we'd get together in the garage and try to make noises. And But, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of time in that. Now, how were the neighbors with your music? Nobody cared. That's Nobody. The, the, the one extremely positive thing I can say about Hispanic neighborhoods is uh, Hispanic people like to party, like to have a good time, and they're not so uptight about silly things, and nobody really cared about the little music here and there, and it wasn't that loud. Yeah. But uh, it's not like... Uh, some neighborhoods you'd go in where, of course, everybody would, you know, I lived in a neighborhood in Lemoore where every time our band tried to practice, the the neighbor would call the cops, but she would usually call the cops from work before she got home because she knew we were practicing. <laughs> That's crazy. So they're kind of uptight people like that. And so growing up through high school and, uh, like, graduating high school, you guys, you still were in a band and still uh, played music? Well, I didn't really have a, I did for a while. We were in, I was in a band, uh, Mostly in my high school years, I had started. Uh, I was working for a company called Murray Hill Sound. Uh, Murray Hill was a this guy bought a bunch of PA equipment and he was uh, renting equipment out and uh, signing up to do shows for different bands. We we did some reasonably good sized acts actually. So uh, I would uh, hang out there and I had had a little repair shop. I'd work on on PA equipment, guitar amps, things like that in the back, and then. Uh, Whenever people would rent equipment, a lot of times smaller bands would rent equipment, but they'd want somebody to hook it up and run it, so they would hire me to uh, be their sound man. Uh, pretty damn good money, actually, back then. I'd charge about $100 to $125 a night. a night for that, which back in 84... That's a lot of money. That was pretty good money. Uh, and then, of course, we could do big shows, and we'd bring out the big system and load it all up and go off to uh, Oklahoma. We did a lot of... Uh, Military bases, the uh, the clubs there and stuff like that. We worked with bands like the Gap Band, uh, the Barkays, uh, Bobby Blue Blend, all kinds of, of uh, a lot of uh, black acts we were really popular with because our PA system had uh, these really big Cerro Vega 18-inch subs and hence they had a lot of bass and yeah. made, us, made us very popular with African-American acts. Uh, but we did a, lot, did a lot of different bands. Did some country stuff, Eddie Raven, uh... I got to meet uh, Miles Davis. I got to meet, uh, well, just a, a lot of different, a lot of different entertainers over the years. So it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, a lot of work, right? Yeah. Oh, Setting yeah. up the equipment, making yeah. sure sound gotta, checks. Got to drive it there, set it up, get everything working, work through the show, and then when everybody else is leaving, you're packing things up and for the next couple of hours. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty exhausting work. Yeah, yeah, and you did that uh, out of high school. Yep. And did it for a few years? While I was in high school, actually. Uh. I did that. I worked at a TV shop, repair shop after school some for a while. Uh, yeah, a little bit of this and that. I was always trying to find some way to make a little money because back then, I mean, like I said, my mom was working double shifts, you know, and she did a, an excellent job of keeping us in a, a place to live and food to eat, but that was it. There was no extra money. There was no buying school clothes every year yeah, yeah, I get the, the basics. Cortez or yeah. anything like that yeah just the basics and then if I wanted something I had to go get it I mean I had to earn money to buy it because my first car I bought my everything I owned every pretty much you know there just wasn't any extra money for for uh, anything aside from essentials but uh so yeah I was mowing yards or cutting down trees or doing whatever doing some anything, kind of labor anything anything to make a little money yeah huh 
Now, after high school, uh, did you get a job anywhere else? Did you move to anywhere? The only... After high school, I worked uh, briefly... Well, I worked a couple places. I worked for a place called the Gutters of Texas. It was a rain gutter installation. Mm. Uh, That was an interesting job. Again, I was the the only white kid there. The only white guy, period. Uh, The the guys I worked with all from Mexican... uh, They're all uh, green card holding resident aliens, but they were were a great bunch of guys, hard, incredibly hardworking guys who really were trying their best to do something good for their families and... Uh, it was a little tough because I was young and and not as motivated. And those guys, man, they from the minute the sun cracked to uh, the time it went down, we were working. There was no goofing off about it. Yeah, so that was uh, it was an interesting experience that one. And I worked for a printing company for a while, doing uh, uh, making labels and stuff for uh, these big giant sheets of labels for canned goods or whatever. Did that for a while, but uh, ultimately wound up in the navy. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking for looking for another job, and I found an ad in the paper that said aircraft mechanic wanted, no experience necessary, and my dumbass called it. <laughs> so, so I'm redheaded uh, AQCM, a uh, master chief, a fire control uh, master chief, talked me into, told me, fed me a bunch of great stories about how wonderful the Navy life was, and convinced me to to sign up. I haven't forgiven him since, but we <laughs> <laughs> sure told some some whoppers, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, some of those experiences that uh, people have of their recruiters is yeah. quite interesting. Well, the recruiting business is a pretty interesting job. They have uh, quotas to meet and requirements if they want to keep doing what they're doing. So. Yeah. You know, it's just like in any other kind of sales job. You're selling something. That's what you're doing. You're selling yeah. a Navy career. Just like those people with the vacuum cleaners that knock on your door or insurance salesmen or anybody else. Encyclopedias or something. Yeah. you got to produce so much or you're uh, you're out of there. So he was pretty good at it. <laughs> now, going into the Navy, and you said you were an aircraft mechanic? Yeah. Well, I, initially going in the Navy, I wanted to be I wanted to get into electronics. I worked at a TV shop. I've always been fascinated by uh, electronics. and So I was pretty much sold on the idea of being an AT. Uh, unfortunately, I had a little uh, legal mishap prior to coming in the military, which prevented me from doing that because uh, I wouldn't have qualified for a security clearance at the time. Um, as a result, I actually went to boot camp. It's what they call non-designated, so I didn't have a job. They uh, convinced me that was a great idea. Oh, yeah, let's go in. You can pick something out later. It's all good. <laughs> it didn't work out so bad. Anyways, at the end of boot camp, we all went to a detailer, who's a person who basically assigns you your... Uh, your uh, trade and they gave us a sheet and said write down five things you want to be <laughs> so I put down there uh, IM which was an instrument uh, it's a rate doesn't exist anymore but instrument mechanic and uh, machinist uh, AE electrician aviation electrician uh, sheet metal or air framer and mechanic this is the very last one and I guess somebody threw some dice and or flipped the coin somewhere, and uh, I wound up being an aviation machinist mate. So, aircraft mechanic, engine mechanic, actually. The engine mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's where I started my Navy career. All ready to go work on engines, and I showed up at the squadron, and they handed me some chains and said, there's a line division, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, hold on a second, I don't remember, remember this being part of the deal. Yeah, right. And, yeah, so yeah, they don't tell you about the little stuff that you got to take care of oh, before yeah. you start getting into your own job. Yeah, there's plenty of little things, little TAD and stuff like that. So, 
But it all worked out. I did my plane captain time, and I wound up going uh, directly to shooters from there, uh, troubleshooters, and so I was a mech troubleshooter as a third class. And uh, actually, I guess I did pretty good at it because I spent a lot of time troubleshooting stuff for the shot because they were having hard times with things, and I got pretty good at uh, understanding systems and kind of understanding how everything works together to, to troubleshoot and figure out problems. So Yeah. I uh, didn't spend a whole lot of time in the shop my first tour in Tomcats and BF2. Uh, I think maybe I spent eight months or something like that in the shop. The rest of the time was in shooters, which I really enjoyed. The shooters, if you're going to be out on a boat, a job like troubleshooters is a good job to have because you stay extremely busy and the time goes by a lot faster. And yeah. Working on a flight deck's a lot of fun. It's a lot of cool. fun. Yeah. Getting stuck in a shop or something like that can be a little boring sometimes, so... I remember being on the flight deck and just not wanting to go back to the shop, just yeah. sitting there. A lot of people didn't. Watching the, all the landings and stuff like that. Yep. Ducking and weaving between airplanes, trying not to get blown off the flight Try deck. Trying not to trip over the damn chains. And the chains. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you learn about them chains. And, and uh, some of my favorites, Tomcats, the, uh, used to carry sidewinders on these little weapon stations under the wing next to the fuselage. And if you were trying to avoid the chain on the main mount, and you didn't duck at the right time, one of those fins from the sidewinder hit you right in the head, which it did me. You know, we wore the cranial helmet and then a pair of goggles below that, and this thing hit right between the helmet and the goggles and split my forehead open, which I didn't even know until I got back to the shop, and they're going, oh, my God, man, what's wrong with you? What do you mean? Oh, shit, I'm bleeding. (laughs) So, yeah, there's plenty of things to... uh, Plenty of things that reach out and grab you there. Oh, yeah. It's kind of crazy. My first uh, line division chief, uh, Carvajal was his name. He he told us, he says, if you look at the front of the manual here, it says aircraft weapon system. That means this thing is designed to kill people, and it's not real picky about who it who it kills and could be you. So <laughs> pay attention to what the hell you're doing. Just pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so. You ever been out uh, on the flight deck uh, in the middle of the night, like while you're on duty or something, and just... Going around checking chains and just check out the stars. Oh yeah, well, we used to do. Uh, we spent a lot of time doing alert fives. That was a big thing back then. Uh, we basically set an aircraft up, turn it, get it ready to launch, station it on the catapult. We'd have an air crew there, and then a whole crew of uh, mechanics, airframes, electricians, whatever. Uh, and we had to sit there until they either called away the the alert or ended the alert, or we were relieved by somebody else. So, spent a lot of hours staring up at the stars and. Out in the uh, the middle of the ocean there, especially when the lighting's turned down or off, yeah. which it oftentimes is on the flight deck. Uh, yeah, the stars really stick out. You can you see things you'll never see in a big city, that's for sure. Pretty crazy out yeah. there. Not just the stars, too, but like when you're underway and you're looking down at the water, you mm. see all the phosphorus. Yeah, see all the little jellyfish and all that stuff that that uh, glow and little spots of light here and there. And, yeah. yeah. A lot of neat stuff to see out there. Things you don't, uh, most people don't realize are there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, while you're uh, you were aboard ship, do you guys go anywhere? Any other any of the countries? You guys stop <laughs> anywhere? <laughs> yeah, we uh, we made quite a few trips. I mean, I've uh, everywhere from uh, Mombasa, Kenya to Karachi, Pakistan, two of my least favorite places, and uh, of course Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, the Philippines. Uh, Oman spent trips there Australia did both Perth and Hobart there and, and a lot of different places yeah. I got to see uh, see some places yeah. <laughs> which was your favorite? 
Uh, I do have a soft spot in my heart for the Philippines because I actually was stationed there for a few years, and that's where I met my wife and where my daughter was born. So the Philippines definitely uh, has a close place in my heart. But uh, there's a lot of neat places. Singapore was a, a pretty cool place that I, I was always kind of fascinated with because mm-hmm. there's such a wide, uh, such a diverse group of people that managed to live together without any real problems there. It's one of the probably one of the safest places outside of maybe Japan. You can walk there anywhere, any time of day or night, and and not really be worried about having problems. Yeah, unless you're looking for it. Yeah, Yeah. and they have very very strict laws, so it has a lot to do with it. So yeah, but uh, yeah, the people there have a a different attitude than than you see here in the states, which is unfortunate that we aren't more like that in some ways. But yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I've heard uh, people talk about like places like you said, Japan, where here in America. You know, we come from England. Well, obviously, England's been around for a long time. But in America, we've only been around for, what, 200, 300 years. Mm-hmm. And places like Japan have been around for thousands of years. Wow. And they're, like, on a different level of being in uh, of society. Yeah. They, uh, they're pretty, like, respectful to each other. Oh, yeah. Well, Japan, a lot of Asia in general, and Japan's an excellent example of it, the cultures are considerably different, and there's a lot of history there, like you said, and a lot of that history is not, uh, it's really not as pretty as some people, you know, people like to look at it nostalgic, oh, you know, all the, the, the kimonos and the dances and the, the samurai and all these uh, wonderful things, but uh, that history was actually very bloody. Uh, very bloody. You didn't question authority, you, could, you didn't... Uh, you couldn't be disrespectful. You'd be killed for that. Yeah, you know, samurai could choose to chop your head off for any particular for reason any they wanted reason. without consequence. So uh, those people developed a over a very long time, as you say, uh, a culture of learning how to uh, avoid confrontation. I guess is the best way. It's uh, a lot of Asia. It's kind of a, it's always considered a bad thing to be confrontational. Yeah. Even in the Philippines, there's uh, there's even laws about it, but. But uh, they have they have phrases and stuff to refer to that. Like uh, in the Philippines, they'll say "malamig uh, ulo," which means "cool head." Uh, you know, the idea is, is not to be confrontational. And if you if you uh, cuss somebody out or use cuss words to somebody there, you can wind up in jail for that because uh, for defamation of character. Uh, so it's actually a law. You don't. Uh, there's certain things you just don't do. <laughs> it's not a good idea. And generally, Asians try to avoid conflict it's no. it's just the nature of their history and and stuff you know and the end result's good the, the road to get there was probably a, a little pricey but but in the end they have a, a much calmer less uh less uh, violent nature than than most than western cultures tend to do yeah. yeah and being in the military there was a lot of filipinos and asians and stuff like that right yeah yeah the philippines has a huge history with the navy uh Long, long ago, the, the Filipinos would be hired on as uh, basically to serve the officers, uh, to work in the wardrooms, cook, clean. Uh, they called them stewards. And they would hire Filipino nationals, not U.S. citizens, and, and get them these jobs. They weren't allowed at the time to be members of the military or to hold a, uh, a rank or, uh, or uh, a trade. Uh, eventually, that changed, and they allowed... The Filipinos who were 
had been stewards, cooks, and things like that to apply for and become mechanics and what have you. Uh, in fact, my first supervisor had been a steward and was a uh, was one of those. He wasn't a very good mechanic, but <laughs> but he had uh, he was real good at taking uh, taking credit for what everybody else was doing. <laughs> that was just him, though. It's not a Filipino thing. It's just different people, different things. But you know, there's a little, hell of a lot of history. And even after that, Filipino nationals were allowed to apply for positions in the, in the navy and become sailors, uh, even though they were were not U.S. citizens. Uh, there was a very, very strict and, and very uh, difficult process, selection process in the Philippines for people to apply and try to get that. And generally, they had to have college degrees and much more qualification than the average American would have to have to get in. Yeah, it surprised mm-hmm. me. I was uh, aboard uh, USS Essex. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were there to pick up an aircraft, and uh, when I, you know, get around and talking to different people. I learned that a lot of those Filipinos on board were not were na- nationals from mm-hmm. the the country itself, right. but not Americans. Right, and they would serve their tour out there and not be able to come back. And I'm like, that's kind of crazy. You serve America and you're not able to. Well, uh, I don't know. There is a a mechanism. People who foreign nationals who join the military have an avenue of becoming citizens uh, because of it. A lot of people. For whatever reason, choose not to pursue it for because the cost, or uh, it's not that difficult, not even that expensive. But uh, for some reason, a lot of people never get around to it or don't get around to it till a lot later. Yeah, uh, we got guys at work that got their citizenship uh, not that many, not that long ago. Kind of had to because uh, you had to have a security clearance to work here. So yeah. in order to get security clearance, they had to get their citizenship, even though they'd retired from the military and. And all that, they still had to get citizenship in order to uh, to qualify for the for clearance. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of people, and it's not just the Philippines. There's I've met a lot of South Americans. I've met a lot of uh, uh, Africans off different countries in Africa who are, are uh, not native that are serving in the military. I met a couple of guys when I was out on a boat a few years ago that were from uh, Nigeria. Really cool guys. I kept giving them a hard time about them phone calls that I would get from there. But <laughs> they swore him down. It wasn't him. It was his cousin. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the different uh, scams that go on or do whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. Those guys were pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people even today that are still are not citizens that are in, the mil- in, our, in our military. But uh, some really good people, too. Usually the hardest workers because... For a Filipino or anybody from a third world country or a, a country that's far more impoverished than we are, you know, the opportunity to join a military and is uh, incredible. It's training and money, and I mean that's a huge. They appreciate what oh, yeah. they have. Well, they work hard because it's you know it's an opportunity that they wouldn't have gotten elsewise. Yeah. So it, it took a hell of a lot of work to get it in the first place, and they certainly aren't going to squander it. It's the the second generation uh, ones that usually have the hardest time because then they become lazy like the rest of the Americans. <laughs> and they, right? The second generations, yeah. they just start expecting stuff. Yeah, well, they're just like everybody else. They were born and raised here, and, you know, they're Americans. I mean, it's color your skin, you got shit to do with it. You're an American, you're an American, you know, black, white, brown, whatever. Yeah. You're used to the privilege of being an American. Most Americans don't even appreciate or understand what that privilege is and, and what they have because they've never seen the other side. So, yeah, they're just like us. You know, they 
just like any of us because they were born here and they, they expect what most Americans expect. And part of that is not to have to work too damn hard. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why you don't see a lot of uh, uh, Caucasian Americans out there picking fields out there and uh, around here. <laughs> it's kind of uh, beneath them. Well, it's you could say beneath them, but it's a lot of damn work. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's, um, you know, most of these kids, they want a nice air-conditioned job somewhere, and they expect to get paid uh, good money and everything, and you're not going to get that out in the field. No. So, yeah. It's kind of sad that it, it, it is that way, though. It's not uh, fair or reasonable, but life's never been fair, so no. unfortunately. Now, you did uh, 20 years in the military. No, actually, I did 12. You did 12? Yep. Okay. I got out when I was a first class. Uh, my wife had breast cancer, and I came down to a decision of staying in the military and having to travel here, there, and everywhere while my wife was going through all this stuff, and I decided to get out. And fortunately, she beat the cancer, at least at that point, and that was quite a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, got out. Did a few odd jobs and then wound up right back and dealing with the jets again. <laughs> dealing with the jets again. Uh, for what company? Well, initially when I got out, I worked for, uh, I sold insurance for a while for Prudential. Uh, I'm not a particularly good salesman, so <laughs> the technical aspect of it I enjoy, but I'm not the uh, the guy that can talk you into buying ice cream. Eskimos into buying ice cream, so we got yeah. other people to do that. So worked at a... Uh, a cannery for a while as a mechanic. I worked uh, at a tractor shop as a mechanic. And then uh, an opportunity came up. A friend of mine was working a, uh, he was actually civil service, but he was working at the jet shop here on base, the engine shop. And uh, they had hired on uh, uh, Raytheon, a contract with Raytheon to add more people on because they were really hurting. Were you living here in Lamar already? At that time, I was in Lamar. Yeah. And uh, I got a call, hey, uh, you want to come work here? And they offered me, at the time I was working for uh, Contesano as a, as a maintenance mechanic, which is a uh, cannery or bottling place. And they offered more money, and it was right here close to my house, whereas I was driving an hour to work, an hour back before. It was hard to pass up. I really enjoyed working for Contesano. They were a great company, but there was no way they could pay me the, the kind of money that the contract was offering. So back to the base I went and yeah. I went it was supposed to be uh, initially it was supposed to be a six month contract and they wound up being there five and a half years there at uh, the jet shop before they finally decided that we had we were too effective <laughs> we were fixing too much stuff so uh, I left I uh, got laid off at that one and then wound up hiring back on at 122 as a plane captain and then later back to the shop and as a mech again but as a civilian as a, as a yeah. contractor. So as a contractor. Then, uh, How'd you like being a, a plane captain, working on the line shot? <laughs> being a plane captain again after 20 years or whatever? Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. A little different as a civilian. They don't treat you quite as uh, poorly as they did when you were in the military. <laughs> it was okay. I mean, it was, some, uh, it was some interesting times. That's when the Super Hornets were first rolling out. We were starting to get those, and uh, we were busy. Yeah, it was okay, and we worked side by side with the with these young sailors, you know, who were just starting in the military, who were playing captains. So yeah. it was it was kind of interesting, good for them too, because we taught them a lot of stuff. But then, uh, like I said, we moved over to the mech shop, and then they kind of went back and forth. Well, they 
we worked in a mech shop. We got to be where the military guys wouldn't do anything because they knew we'd do it do all the work. <laughs> so they'd sit there and play on the computers. And, oh. So the contract officer decided that wasn't a good idea, and he, he put us all in the phase shop. And then everything went to hell in the mech shop, and they put us back in the mech shop again, and kind of back and forth a couple of times. And then they had a uh, job fair for uh, civil service jobs, and uh, I got wind of it, so I went over there and filled out some paperwork and applied and got picked up to be a mechanic at the depot, which kind of funny at the time they were a debt. It was a pretty small debt there on base, and we weren't working in the hangar right now. We were down the street. And I showed up for work, and they had no idea who I was or that I was coming. <laughs> really? They had tried to, uh, they had contractors working with them also, and they were trying to hire the people who had been there as contractors over. But I managed to sneak in through the job fair, and me and another guy. Now, those were uh, the San Diego yeah, guys they were, they were at the job fair, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the people that were here were basically TAD or TY from San Diego. Yeah. But they had been here for oh, quite a while. They might as well have moved here. They were just making extra money being TDY. Eventually, it became a a permanent uh, debt, and the TDY thing went away. But and we moved into the the building we're in now, and that was back in two thousand six when we moved in there. So yeah. So about nine and a half years as a contractor, and then then on to civil service, and I've been doing that now for, I don't know, what is it, 16? I get lost sometimes. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. And things have changed. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. a whole lot different when I first started there. It was a, more of a debt mentality. We had... Uh, a site manager, one supervisor. Um, I think we had an E and E, an engineering assistant. It was hardly any admin to speak of. It was very no HR, none of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty laid back. Most of the guys that were there had been civil service for decades, so there were some very experienced, very knowledgeable people, and uh, we got in there, got the job done, and. And it was uh, it was a lot easier and a lot more employee oriented. We had parties and, and uh, employee appreciation days and things like that. Not like nowadays where they don't appreciate the employees at all. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't had a gathering like that in years. You guys got the work done though, right? As, oh, yeah. Even as small as you guys were, you guys were knocking it out. Oh yeah, yeah. We got in there and like I said, the guys we had were extremely experienced, so we we got things done. Yeah. Uh, we got had some advantages. We got away with a few things here and there because, you know, if you came in and there was a certain thing that needed to be done, you got those things done and you got to go home. Yeah. So you didn't always, uh, sometimes there were some good deals because of that, you know, you get in there and do a quick and good job of it. But, uh, yeah, it was much more relaxed, let's just say that. But the camaraderie was different. Yeah. It was, yeah, everybody was, uh, I don't know, they're still pretty good. Still pretty good camaraderie, if you will, between the people that work there, at least the, the working people. Uh, we probably got along a lot better with what you would call management back then than we do nowadays. No. Uh, there's much more of a separation now than there used to be. Them against us type yeah, deal. Yeah, I mean, it's that's normal. It happens in any job you go, you know, the supervisor, oh, that guy, you know, or the manager, you know. They got a job to do, and their job isn't to be your friend. It's to get the job done, so... 
if they can do that and be friendly, then that's great. But it doesn't always work that way. No. Yeah. No. Hmm. And the guy on the bottom is always looking up at the top and thinking how great it, that guy up there must have it. And the guy on the top is going, God, I wish I was back down there because this sucks working up here. <laughs> working in the toolbox, right? Yeah. <coughs> and there's been a couple guys that have come yeah. back down to uh, work out of the toolbox and uh, to just to give up those responsibilities that they hate so much. Yeah, it's... Uh, not that much of a pay increase when you move up in most of these jobs, but the uh, the amount of work or the amount of stuff you're expected to deal with and responsibilities, the time frames and everything else are uh, are, are much more. It's a little easier to to relax and get by on the floor when there's 30 mechanics, and then if you're an E and E and there's there's five or six of you, <laughs> it kind of narrows it down a little bit, and then. No. Uh, it's a little harder to take off time and stuff like that because uh, we got work to do and you can't afford to have anybody off. So it's it's easier to, to get away, you know, get time off and do things on the floor than it is when you're when you're in those work lead positions or supervisor positions or whatever. Because now there's just one of you <laughs> instead of you know ten or fifteen or twenty or whatever. Yeah. And so. you're you guys are have separated so that you guys have a specific area you guys are looking for and. If you guys aren't there, everybody else has to pick up your slack. Yep, that's a big one, especially when, uh, as it is, we're tasked damn near to the max because uh, and going into a lot of details and all that stuff, maybe. But uh, you know, we're we're kept quite busy, and it's hard enough to get by with everybody there. So when one person's gone, it really puts a strain on things. Yeah. Yeah. That and people keep coming up to you. Hey, I need this. Oh, hey, yeah. can you rack this up or whatever? Well, that's all part of it. You, you got the eval you're doing now, but you've also got the last two that are still out there and need more attention for things. So, yeah, there's always something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, do you think uh, something like that keeps you stressed, or does it keep you on your toes and keeps you young? <laughs> A little of all of that. Uh, there are times when it's very stressful, and and you question why you're still doing this. And then there's times when staying busy is good because it makes time go by faster. Not, you know, there are times when we haven't got anything going on, and that's not good either because you get bored real quick. <laughs> but especially when you're used to jumping through your backside literally to get things done, and all of a sudden you got nothing. And it's like uh, I need to do something, but there's nothing to do. <laughs> so. But it's uh, it's one of those things what they call feast or famine. So you're either so busy you can't see the the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and uh, or you don't have anything. So yeah, there hasn't been too much of that. Don't have anything here lately, though. <laughs> yeah, I think it's coming though. Well, there's times it'll it'll come comes and goes. Because we've been running rapid for what the two three years, mm-hmm. kind of running hard at it. And then just like within the last six months or so, they, they've been telling us, you know, slow down, slow down. Yeah, well, I don't remember hearing anybody say slow down exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> stop spending money. You know, yeah. That was one of them. But yeah. 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 You know, it comes and goes. Things are the needs of the Navy, as they say. And now that we have uh, a little different government structure, our, uh, our financial future is obviously uh, a little dimmer than it has been in the past. So. Our Democratic friends tend to not like to spend money on the military. They like to take money away. So we're going to be facing some uh, some changes over the next few years, I think. But Which we'll has see. been seen in the past. Oh, yeah. It's happened over and over again. 
Yeah. I mean, you look back in the Reagan era, we had a 600-ship Navy, and then then uh, Clinton came in and got rid of all that. <laughs> so, wow. You know, it was, uh, it, it varies. Uh, the political ideologies are a little different. So, so uh, yeah, and we were affected by that, however it works out. And as you know, with the budgets and everything else, you know, there's almost every year now, it seems like there's a, well, it might be a furlough because they haven't passed the budget and this, that, and the other. So always fascinates me that somebody can be hired to do a job like a senator and fail to do that job and not lose it. Whereas if I'm hired to do a job and I don't do my job, they fire me. <laughs> yeah, right. How is it you don't pass a budget and you still got a job? So. <laughs> you know, one of the things that just irritates me is that uh, they say that, uh, you know, during a furlough, right, or during those uh, government shutdowns and they have to tell people to go home and you're not going to be paid and you're not going to get your paycheck, right? But they... As a senator, as a congressman, or whatever, they say it's against the law for them not to be paid. Yeah, but the labor laws say that you know you're supposed to get paid when you did the job, right? So, but they they don't want to give you your paycheck because the government is shut down. Well, the furlough is a little different because you're not actually when they actually furlough, you're not coming to work. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like they're having you work for free. That would be illegal. But not having you work at all is not illegal. So. But those guys are put in those positions, and they don't work yeah. to solve anything. Sometimes it, you, you have to question it sometimes. just I think that, I mean, you know as well as I do, we've talked about it a lot. And my opinion on, on a modern America, if you will, is that uh, by whatever forces, whether you want to, you know, whatever conspiracy theory you prefer, but if you want to say it's the government doing it or the media or some group of people in a dark room that we don't know anything about, but there is a, a push to segregate our society. Uh, all this racial issues and, and wealth issues and sexual orientation issues and everything, all these things are, are created, in my opinion, and, and what it does is it divides people up. Instead of working together, people are divided into groups and arguing and bickering amongst themselves over a lot of stuff that's pretty silly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's there are issues. You know, the you know a guy getting having somebody sit on his neck for eight minutes uh, during arrest. That's wrong, and and that need to be addressed. And it would have been addressed, I think. I don't know if it would have been addressed as well without the media attention and the rioters and the, all that stuff. Or but there there is a process in place when things like that happen. There's reviews. There's internal affairs. There's you know, a police officer shoots somebody, he doesn't just go back to work the next day and have a great day. It's, no. It's, he gets suspended, and they they have an investigation and all that sort of thing. So it's not like there wasn't a system in place. Uh, whether the system was fair, uh, one could question, I suppose. But those things do need to be addressed. Those are issues that shouldn't exist. I mean, you shouldn't be killing people during an arrest if it's not necessary. And you know, once you got the guy and you know, the guy resisted arrest, you had to... You had to get him under control, but once you had him under control, you didn't need to choke him out for eight minutes. So, yeah, obviously that was very, very wrong. Uh, but I'm saying that it seemed to me that racial tensions were actually improving a lot up until a certain point, and now we're going backwards. You know, we spent years trying to desegregate to bring people together and not separate them off and have them living different lives in different places you know you guys stay over there we'll stay over here and we got rid of that and we started desegregating and people were moving into 
you know, it was okay for everybody to live in the same neighborhood. It wasn't an issue. We didn't have people burning crosses in people's front yards because they were living in the wrong neighborhood or something. It was actually illegal for black people to move into different neighborhoods in Texas, right? I don't know what the laws were in those days, but yeah. there there was, you know, the Jim Crow era and stuff like that. There were some really tragic and sad things that went on. But like I said, those things were getting better. We were going away from that. We were trying to desegregate. And desegregate, we're literally trying to to make things equal. You, yeah. Everybody can go to the same places, do the same things, have the same opportunities. And now we're actually undoing all that. You got people out there who want well. We want a, a black only graduation. We want uh, our own uh, dormitories or whatever you know because we want to be separate. Well, hell, we worked for for a hundred years to try to get rid of that, and now you want to bring it back. Yeah. And, and and to me, all this divisiveness that's out there in the media, especially with the the internet and all the you know Facebook and all these things. Uh, is pushing everybody into these small groups, and they've got everybody's attention focused on these these problems like race and genders and whatever. And so people aren't paying any attention to their government. So you've got people, you know, they elect people nowadays based on their appearance and their 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 uh, personality. You know, so they get up in front of you and they look good and they sound good. How and they that's can all speak people care about. Stuff, yeah, uh, people don't go back and look and, and see what they did. In the past, you know, what was their voting history when they were in the Senate or, you know, what laws did they pass? What did they bring up? You know, did they do something useful for the country? People don't care. They don't even pay attention to that. All they care about is, oh, he looks good on TV. So well, let's go ahead and vote for he that can, guy. He can spend millions of dollars. So it's not about being qualified. Campaign. Not about being qualified to hold an office. It's about how, you know, it's a rock star. You look good on stage. Yeah. You know, not not your actual ability or proven history of doing useful things for society. And politicians like that. They don't want people looking at them. You know, the less that the public's looking at them, the happier they are. So it seems to me that a lot of it is a way of controlling the people by, by getting us at odds with one another so that we're not looking at the, you know, the things. It's not a government of the people anymore because the people aren't paying any attention. No. You know, people fought for a long time for the right to vote, women for the right to vote, uh, African-Americans for the right to vote. They fought hard and long to gain those rights. And sadly, they're not using them. You know, a lot of people aren't. And it's not, you know, it's not one race or anything like that. I mean, everybody. You it's know, a lot of people. It's a lot of people. You know, I mean, if you actually look at the number of people who actually vote in the presidential election, it's tiny compared to the population of the country. Yeah. And it's sad. It's sad that people don't take, pay more attention to or, or well, show Well, they say that in, uh, in this past election against Biden, against Trump, that uh, it was the highest uh, that people have ever voted in ever in America. And it was only like 40% of the people. Yeah, if that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason, yeah, because there was such a huge media bliss around the whole subject of Trump and, and uh, the liberal movement and the Democrats. And, yeah, it guided a lot of people out. Uh, of course, that percentage is questionable because how many of those people were dead? And, uh, <laughs> that's a good <laughs> That's a yeah. good point. There was a lot of dead people voting, so, you know. <laughs> they came out in record numbers. <laughs> they came out in record numbers. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of questions, you know. And I think America really needs to wake up. And they talk about being woke, but I think they're, they're a little confused about what that actually means. Mm. Because they're not really paying attention to the things that matter. I mean, not saying that... that uh, Injustice doesn't matter. Of course, we need to be paying attention to that stuff. It needs to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, maybe not by burning public 
uh, cop cars and things like that and looting stores, perhaps, but it definitely needs to be addressed. And I'm not against anybody uh, standing up and speaking their mind. I mean, that's part of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. But at the same time, destroying stuff is not really a protest, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, people need to focus on on, th- on all the details, all the importance. And you know, it's like it's too much effort, too much work to actually look into things. They, people just don't want to do it. Or just sit there and have a conversation. Yeah. To sit yeah. there and have a conversation and to... Understand what that person's uh, across from you is saying, and then trying to come back and prove to him how he's wrong, but not shoveling your shit down their throat. Well, I think the biggest problem right there, you said conversation. In order to have a conversation, somebody has to listen. Yeah. And unfortunately, probably the poorest skill that Americans have is the ability to listen. Mm-hmm. Everybody can talk. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody will come up and they'll scream and yell and shout and get a megaphone out and tell you what they think about whatever. Uh, getting them to stop and listen to somebody else is nearly impossible. Uh, you see it all the time. You see these uh, people demonstrating marching and they're screaming and yelling and somebody wants to try to have a discussion or you know express their concerns or opinion about something. You can't because they just scream louder so they don't have to hear you. No. And... The ability to listen is actually a, a very important skill that very few people actually have. It's a, uh, yeah, it's kind of rare. <laughs> it's a virtue, yeah, for uh, leadership. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of leaders make is they don't listen, don't pay attention. Yeah. They got their vision of what's going to happen, and they don't want to hear anything else. So, unfortunately, it doesn't work out very well. Yeah, and it's we're seeing the evidence of bad leadership. You know, we've had bad leaders in even the, just the California government for mm-hmm. the last, what, 50 years? And it, this place is just tearing itself apart. We're, we're letting homeless people just congregate and live anywhere they want. Well, that's an issue, but there's the, the backside of that issue is why are there so many homeless people in the first place? I mean, here we are in California, the golden state. Uh, California's gross national product is bigger than than half of the nations by itself in half the nations of the world. This is, a, I mean, California might as well be its own country in a lot of ways. So there's opportunity, there's money, everything's here. So why are there so many people uh, that can't afford to live? Yeah. And it's not just, you know, there's homeless people, but there's people that are struggling and barely surviving. You, you go to major cities here in California, and an average person cannot afford to live there. No. Most people have places to. Places like San Diego, San most, Francisco. Yeah, San Francisco is a good example. Uh, most people, even Sacramento or whatever, most people have to commute from a long distance outside of the cities in order to work because the, the paying jobs are there, but they can't. They don't make enough money to actually live there. No. And that's sad. It's the real estate in this state. The cost of real estate has gone ridiculously high, uh, and if if our current governor has his way, we'd be a lot higher because he wants to get rid of our uh, a Prop 13, which which prevents them from raising our taxes on our houses. And houses are already astronomically expensive here. Then they want to raise the cost of that even more by increasing the taxes on them. And 
in one one side of their face they're talking about everybody needs affordable housing and the other side of their face they want to increase the taxes and make housing less affordable so <laughs> you know there's always it's just two sides with these people all the time you know we're not going to raise taxes on people under 400,000 except that when they raise taxes on all these big businesses they're going to have to increase the price of their products which means the poor people are going to have to pay more you know that rich guy doesn't care if his gas is five dollars a gallon it doesn't matter to that rich guy but to the uh, the dude that has to jump in his pickup truck and go to work, you know, and has to have that that truck to do his job, it makes a big difference to him when when it's two dollars extra a gallon for gas. Uh, yeah. So they these, these guys talk about we're doing everything to help the poor man. They're not doing a damn thing to help the poor man. Oh, we're going to give you a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Well, that's fine. Except fifteen dollars an hour isn't going to buy you anything more than the eight dollars an hour did because everything went up. I mean, go to a fast food restaurant. A freaking hamburger is like twelve bucks now. You can't buy now. a meal for yeah. less than ten dollars. Yeah. Hell, you're lucky even you get to ten dollars. I went and bought something the other day. It was like fifteen bucks for burger and fries. It's just ridiculous. It's just gone crazy. And then, not only has everything gone up, but the jobs have gone down because they got rid of uh, cashiers and stuff and replaced them with automated machines. So, you pay more for the product, and they're paying fewer people uh, to produce it. So that. Uh, there's less jobs, there's less opportunity, so it's $15 an hour is great for the few people that get it, but a lot of people lost their jobs because of it, and people don't fully appreciate that. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, minimum wage hadn't increased in a long time, and it was due to increase. Uh, I'm just saying that the, a large jump like that is not, uh, not going to benefit anybody, and even more so because everybody above that isn't getting a raise. So now you got... Let's suppose you had a job making $20 an hour and something that required uh, some sort of trade skill or whatever, and you had work to get to that position. And along comes kid, a kid out of high school that's getting $15 an hour right out the starting gate without having done anything. And he's making damn near as much money as you are, and you've been working for 15 years to get to your, your place in life. So it's, it's actually a form of... It's heading in the direction of socialism because you're actually narrowing the distance between the skilled labor force that worked for those higher wages and the people just starting out, or the, as they like to call them, poor, somebody that makes a career out of a job that was never meant to be a career. And now those numbers are coming closer together. So our spending, you know, middle class spending power goes down and uh, we all become uh, a little more dependent. And, and of course, certain political parties want us to be dependent and they want us to be on their uh, paycheck so to speak so they can control things so it's kind of like uh to me you know when a person grows up in a bad neighborhood and they want to get out of this bad neighborhood they f- they find every single way that they can work and 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 try to get out of this neighborhood and then finally they make it out of the neighborhood and then the government goes by and says well you don't deserve this. Uh, we're going to give it to Joe Smucatelli, who's on welfare and stuff, mm-hmm. and he deserves it because he's on welfare. But you don't, so yeah, this you, and that. You worked like a dog to get out of that, and now you're now you're the victim in a different way. Yeah, one kind of one sort of victim to another. Yeah, yeah. it's just crazy. I just I don't understand how we we keep hiring leaders like this that 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 aren't looking for the root cause of the problem. Well, that's that's a, a key word right there, the root cause. We like to treat the symptoms. Yeah. We like to say, oh, poverty, poverty, we need to give money. Instead of poverty, poverty, 
why aren't they getting jobs? You know, what 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 do we need to do to get them into uh, better opportunities? You know, do we need to do something with education? Is what what are we missing? What's what's the like you said the root cause? What's why is it that a uh, disproportionate number of African Americans uh, don't have the skills to compete in in better paying jobs? What's missing? What's the problem? Where's the where's the root cause? And like you said, nobody addresses that. Nobody addresses it. They're, they're glad to throw money at it. We'll, we'll throw some money out to welfare. We'll put some housing units up, you know, and uh, make some nice little ghetto places for people to live. But we're not going to actually look at the root cause of why this young man who has his whole life ahead of him cannot get uh, an opportunity to to expand and move up and develop a career and, and make something good out of their life. Even, even when they spend money, like L.A., the county of LA spent over four hundred million dollars to battle homelessness. Hmm. That's a lot of money to battle home- homelessness. How do they have record numbers of homeless people in LA, like Skid Row, hmm. like all them places out there, just camped out in front of businesses and stuff like that? Well, you look when at, they spend that much money on shit like that. Well, you look at this place here. When I first moved to Lemoore. You really didn't see a lot of homeless people. There might have been a, a tiny, tiny handful of uh, panhandlers you'd run into, but very yeah. rare. For the most part, it's pretty rare. You didn't see these little tent camps and stuff, you know, like you see now. The the homeless population here in this tiny little little town has probably increased 800 percent in the last 10 years. You know, and why is that? What 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 what's missing? And there's a lot of factors. It's not just about uh, skills or abilities. It's about uh, drugs is a big part of it. Uh, a lot well, of mental these, health. Yeah, mental health is a huge part of it, and that's that's another subject you hear about it once in a while, but nothing serious is being done about it because there's not enough uh, services available for people who need need services like that. It's hard to find. Um, Mental health, like you said, there's uh, and drugs, uh, methamphetamines. I mean, that stuff is tearing up everything. It's uh, heroin, methamphetamines, tremendously addictive drugs that are just destroying people's lives. And it's not just poor people from, uh, you know, a, a poor neighborhoods that are suffering from this. I mean, I've, there's shows, uh, intervention. There's an intervention show I watch occasionally, and some of the people on there had successful businesses. Uh, one guy was a uh, uh, physical therapist and all this stuff had a practice, you know, making really good money, and he got hooked on meth, mm-hmm. and basically lost everything. He lost his family, his kids, business. Was living in his mom's garage, and this is a guy that educated, you know, had college, had a business going, and threw it all away. Drugs just took it all away. Uh, so it's not just a poor person's problem. In fact, wealthier people are even probably even more in danger because they can actually afford to buy the drug in the first place. Uh, they can afford to get it. They yeah. can afford to. So, yeah, those things are, are what's tearing us up. And now, find, figuring out why people start doing that. I mean, I understand some of it to some degree. I mean, we've all enjoyed a a, a nice drink once in a while, you know, a little Jack and Coke or something. And for most people, that's not a problem. For some people, it becomes a tremendous addiction. Like my father. You know, you know, some people just can't handle it, and then once they get hooked on it, they can't stay away from it. So, and the same thing happens with drugs even quicker. Uh, why do people start it in the first place? That's there's a goes there's a good question there. You know, what is it we got to do to to change the 
the attitude in our society that that makes people want gravitate toward that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, there's a uh, big thing right now where they're wanting to not put a big uh, stigmatism on drugs because they're saying that, um, you know, if a person wants to do drugs and live out his life doing drugs, just let him. He's not doing you any harm, right? But, and, you know, the big thing they're doing right now is with, like, cannabis, Hmm. People are using cannabis in record numbers, and they're saying, well, see, you got regular Joe Smuckatelli over here who's doing great, and he's using cannabis every day, and he's not letting his life fall apart, right? So why can't we do that with psilocybin or, you know, just different stuff like this? So they don't address, like, the people who have uh, let their lives fall apart. They don't address the bad parts of this stuff. I, I'm a big proponent for cannabis, but hmm. I don't... I've seen bad things happen because of it. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a... I'm not a hugely religious person, but there are some, some really wise sayings and information that come from, from religious sources. Uh, one of those being uh, your, your sins. Uh, one of being gluttony. And if you read the Bible and you read these these sins, uh, maybe it doesn't really strike home, but the wisdom of it is there. Too much of anything is bad. If you eat too much food, you get fat. It's bad. It's bad bad for your health. You won't live as long. You drink, you know, you can drink a beer. It's not going to hurt you. There's nothing wrong with having a beer. It's when you drink a lot of beer that it becomes a problem. It goes back to this gluttony again. Too much of anything, even extreme sports, you know, that's become so popular. Let's go do extreme sports and just really push ourselves and everything. And people are dying, you know, base jumping off of things and uh, running and having and having heart attacks on the side of the road because they're pushing themselves so hard and dehydrating or overhydrating. Uh, you know, too much of anything. You know, exercise is good. Too much exercise actually isn't. It tears your body up. It wears out your joints. There's there's a limit to what your body can tolerate. And too much of it is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, and that's true with anything else. Uh, marijuana by itself is not a bad thing. It's not a terrible, horrible drug. In fact, it's a hell of a lot better than alcohol. Uh, people drink, get drunk on alcohol. They want to go out and start a fight and raise hell and smash stuff. That's that's common, typical bar fights. I mean, it's yeah. been around forever. <laughs> Ever. People uh, smoke a doobie. They usually sit down on the couch, eat Doritos, and watch a movie. <laughs> And they don't want to go nowhere, <laughs> except maybe to get a Twinkie. But, you know, uh, a little bit is okay. It's a recreational thing. It's not a big deal. Uh, people who take it to the extreme, who stay stoned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that is going to negatively impact your life because yeah. it's you can't operate and function uh in that state, not it, it'll adequately. stress out the people yeah. around you too, and not adequately. Yeah, it, it makes it difficult for deal with a person like that. Uh, they're not going to be as effective or efficient or functional as somebody who's sober. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to enjoy a, a, a few tokes on the weekend and, and have fun, but Monday morning you need to be straight and sober and able to do your job. Uh, also, marijuana with young people it can have a negative impact on their mental development. Yes, so. Uh, they definitely shouldn't be, and unfortunately, they're probably the biggest market for it. But 
uh, most people try it when they're young. So, but it's really not good for young people. There is there is actually proven uh, facts that it, it will affect your mental development. Once you're fully developed in an adult, it doesn't have as bad of an effect on you. But again, if you're lighting up every hour for every day or vaping or whatever it is you're doing, yeah, that's excess. It's not good. It's gluttony. No. So if you if you keep that in mind, those seven deadly sins that they talk about in the Bible, I'm not saying that, if, you know, whether you're religious or not, it's irrelevant. It's a piece of wisdom. You know, those those things are there because people understood for a long time that too much of this or too much of that is not good. You know, uh, Ten Commandments, you know, treat others as you'd have them treat you. Now, they say that that phrase or concept's been around even further, longer than the Bible, but but the point is, is if you want to be, you have an expectation of how you want to be treated, you have to treat other people with that same way, otherwise nobody's going to get the treatment they expect or want. Yeah. So treat other people the way you wish to be treated. Uh, you know, don't... Uh, Lust after your neighbor's possessions, you know. Uh, don't steal. Don't. That's a big one right there. You know, uh, don't steal. Don't kill. I mean, these are everybody understands that. Nobody wants to have their stuff stolen. Nobody. You go out and find a thief who's uh, made a career out of stealing stuff, but they don't want their stuff stolen. But they think it's okay to go out and steal somebody else's stuff because they need stuff and can't just work for it. And so point is there's wisdom and all that and you know if people uh, spend a little more time thinking about themselves and, and where they're at and what they could do to improve themselves uh, the world would probably be a lot better place unfortunately most Americans spend their time analyzing the people around them and trying to determine what their faults are and, and point them out instead of paying any attention to themselves and what to their themselves. own faults are yeah. and nobody's better has a better position to identify and improve on on your failings than yourself and if you don't spend any time uh, addressing that then you can't expect people around you to who are doing exactly the same thing you are to improve themselves so it, it's a one of those theories that Americans unfortunately haven't caught on to no they haven't yeah and I just I just hope that uh, sooner or later that we have somebody with some influence to start teaching people, like you said, to self-improve. And to listen. And, yeah, <laughs> to listen, but to self-improve and to, you know, I seem to think that um, if you were to improve your community, things will get better for everybody. Yes. I, I am... I don't. I, I seem to think that. We, who was it that uh, said? You know, uh, uh, how does the saying go? Don't ask what the government can do for you, but you know, see what you can do for the government. John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Yes, that was one of the most uh, intelligent things ever the president ever said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, what, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah. And. Uh, they call that civic duty. Uh, if you can try to, you know, um, put that forth towards your community, hmm? you start improving everything around you. Well, that's one of the big problems of society in general, and it's one of the main reasons why communism would never function. Um, 
the theory of communism is, is in reality a beautiful idea. It really is. The, the idea is that a group of people share everything equally, everybody does their part, and work together to support each other. It's a, it's a communal effort to live a good life. Um, and no excesses, everybody gets what they need. Great idea. Human beings can't do it. <laughs> no. Because there's always going to be somebody that wants more. There's always going to be when somebody wants more power or they want more money. Uh, somebody's going to, in any group, somebody's going to take the lead. Um, and oftentimes people that do that wind up abusing it as well. So uh, human nature precludes that system from working. And more so in today's society, people are so self-centered at this point, uh, it's amazing we function at all. Because, I mean, you even drive down the road, you can't hardly get from point A to point B without somebody trying to run you off the damn road. <laughs> uh, and that's because they're so centered on themselves and they're, you know, i got to get where I'm going, that's all that matters, the hell with everybody else. You know, I don't care if they have to run them off the road. I'm gonna. I got to get there first. I got to get the stoplight before you do, or, or the world's gonna come to an end. So, <laughs> yeah. Even though we're gonna be sitting there at the stoplight together, but I got to be ahead of you because that's that's important to me. Uh, that attitude, that self-centered, uh, you know, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What do I get? That's the base problem of a lot of this. Uh, you know, like you said, if people actually spend a little time concerned about their community, about people around them, their friends, their family, the people in their neighborhood. If you, if every person did one good thing a day, imagine how much better the world would be. People oftentimes say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm just one person and my, my actions aren't going to change anything. Well, they do because if you don't start doing something positive, then chances are everybody else can have the same attitude and they're not going to do anything positive. So nobody's doing anything positive. It's all negative. Everybody's out, again, for themselves. If you, as an individual, look at yourself and make a decision that I'm going to do something useful, I'm going to be, I'm going to smile. I'm going to say hi. You know, when I walk past somebody on the street, I'm going to be friendly, you know. And you remember that silly uh, thing. pay it forward? Mm. No. Where uh, people were going through drive throughs and telling the... Uh, when they would pay for their stuff in a drive-thru, mm-hmm. they would say, hey, can can I pay for his stuff behind me? Yeah. Uh, something like that happened to me one time, and yeah. I was like flabbergasted. Yeah, it happened to me once, too, oddly enough. Yeah, I pulled up after ordering something, and I said, oh, it's good. So people before you pay for it, I'm like, oh, well, shit, that was nice. Yeah. But that leaves you, you know, and that's a, that's a good example. I mean, uh, the value of it is not in the money; it's in the the feeling that you get from it. The, the feeling, feeling yeah. that you get for having done that makes gives you a warm, happy feeling that you did something nice for somebody. The person that receives it uh, appreciates it, and, and they get a little positive boost in their day. You know that they might not have otherwise got. That's why I say even something as simple as just saying hi to somebody when you walk by. Uh, you know, smile, be friendly. You know, it was open. one of the big reasons why I, I enjoy Visalia over like San Bernardino. Mm-hmm. When I was living in San Bernardino, everybody just lived their lives mm-hmm. and people just got from A to B and weren't like looking at each other or even acknowledging each other. Almost afraid. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then when I got up here, like even when I went to the grocery store and stuff, people looked at you and said, hey, how you doing? Hey. Oh, do you mind if I get in front of you so I can get this? Yeah. You know, it's just... A lot better manners up here, and it, it seemed to me more of a community than just mm-hmm. living next to somebody. Well, I think that's one of the big advantages of living in a small town. Uh, one of the problems our society has is, in my opinion, large cities, because when you cram so many people in such a small space, 
it takes a certain uh, maturity and uh, you know like in Japan it's very crowded but the people have a, a, a mature attitude so they work together and not struggle against one another whereas uh, Americans again that self-centered thing you know everybody's out for themselves and you got a city with seven million people in it you know there's not a whole lot of well there's something happening over there but I don't care it's not my problem I don't, it's not my problem I don't care that guy's getting beat up over there that's, that's not my issue I'm gonna just mind my own business and go on my way yeah in a small town things are a lot different you tend to have a much greater chance of knowing people that that you run into uh, the attitudes are better it's not so crowded human beings don't do well by themselves but they also don't do well in, in huge crowds so when you reach that that medium stage there with the small towns it tends to be a lot better uh, in California though as a general rule is is a lot different than other places I've been you know I remember when I first came to California from Texas I was shocked because in Texas when you moved into a neighborhood a new house or whatever people come over and knock on your door and welcome and introduce themselves and they bring a pie over or something you know and or invite you to a barbecue you know people were very open everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood I came to California I went to San Diego and I moved into a house there and I went to introduce myself to people and they look at you like you're a disease you know <laughs> why are you knocking on my door I'm, you know what are you trying to sell me do I need to call the police or you you know are you a threat <laughs> there yeah they just uh, people avoided each other you know you come out and you're mowing your yard and guys out in the yard next to you and you don't even look at you because <laughs> you know it's, it's a it's a different attitude you know it's like growing up we never locked our doors there was no need to uh I wouldn't even think about that here. You know, in Japan today, you park your car in Japan, you don't lock your door. There's no point. Nobody's going to mess with it. You drop your wallet somewhere, they'll find you and bring it back to you yeah. <laughs> with all the money in it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a whole different uh, attitude about things. They don't even Japanese don't even consider the idea of 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 doing prevent uh, doing a crime. It's it's not it doesn't occur to them to take the money. It's just not the way they think. I mean, they have crime, but it's it's very very little you know you don't hear about people getting killed every weekend in a major city uh-huh. you know somebody gets killed and murdered in in japan that's national news because it's so rare uh, yeah i wish we could i wish we could ad- adapt some of that attitude here in this in this country uh, i think we is, just have to evolve or well like you said there's got there's got to be a movement at some point you know we've got all this amazing communication ability and in fact we're so much information we're probably over saturated with it but you know with all the social media and, and everything that's available now there's there's stuff in your face 24 7 if some of that actually was used positively we might actually do something if the if the the overlying message in all these formats that kept coming out was be be good be helpful be uh, friendly you know be a positive influence on your community if that was the real message instead of clickbait instead of hate and clickbait and you know, oh, another black person was killed uh, while they were resisting arrest. Uh, unfortunately, you know, bad things do happen, and there are bad people. There, most cops, I believe, are good, but there are ones that are probably not. But, but you never hear, you know, it's certain groups that they get all the attention for that. You know, you never hear if a black, a white guy gets killed resisting arrest. It's not going to make the news. Nobody cares. Uh, he was an idiot. He resisted arrest and got himself killed. Uh, but if, because of all the tension and everything, certain things are focused on so highly, and it's like every day there's another incident. And some of the incidents, like the the recent one with the the girl that got shot, 
it really didn't matter what that police officer did. Uh, if he didn't stop the girl from stabbing the other girl, he would have gotten in trouble. Uh, would have probably had people screaming and yelling, why wasn't he, you know, he didn't defend her, you know. And, but then he shot the girl to prevent her from stabbing him, and now he's in trouble for that. So pretty much it was a lose-lose. No matter what the guy did, he was probably screwed, which is probably why I'm, I'm, I don't have any statistics, but I can imagine that it's incredibly difficult for police departments to find new police officers because who's going to want to do that job? You know, it pays okay, but it's not enough to even, risk your life on. Even when you have a police force that has bad people in it, let's say, like, you know, in the Marine Corps, they told us 10% of the Marine Corps are criminals. We, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. for some reason or another, whatever. So let's apply that knowledge to police departments. Only 10% of the police departments are either racist or have a chip on their shoulder or whatever. Mm-hmm. In a city like Los Angeles, where it's 7 million people, how does that bad cop find you? Hmm. Well, first off, uh, an overt racist to actually go out and, and pull somebody over, harass them based on a racist uh, theology... Is, high, is actually kind of unlikely because the fact is we're looking for that. You know, if those cases like that pop up and if it's proven that you actually are going out of your way to harass people based on their race, it's going to get attention. It's going to get it. Yeah, you're, they're not going to ignore that. That's You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get fired for that. That's that's not tolerated. Uh, in our society today, it's, even, it's not tolerated. So, yeah, there may be some racist. I mean... I don't think that, you know, they, they make it sound like everyone in the damn country is a racist, but it's not. It's uh, it's just a very small group, and even then, they probably don't act on it in the way you would expect because they would get in a shitload of trouble for that. Um, it's just circumstances and situations. But at the same time, you know, police being a police officer is an incredibly difficult job. You know, you can lose your life in a heartbeat. Uh, there's a lot of bad people in the world. And you go to respond to a, to a call, and you take actions to protect yourself and to protect the people that you're dealing with. But when the people you're dealing with are not cooperating, refuse to cooperate and uh, uh, resist arrest and fight and run and all this sort of thing, you know, and, and you're surprised when you're having incidents because of that. Well, maybe the problem isn't so much that the police officers are using excessive force. Maybe the problem is is people need to start behaving appropriately. The police officer pulls you over. This is a man with a gun has a job to do. He pulls you over and says, uh, I need to see your ID and everything. You put your hands up on the steering wheel, and when he tells you to pull your ID out, you carefully reach out with one hand and do that. You, know, you do what they say. You, you cooperate, and it's generally okay. No big deal. You know, you got pulled over for a light out in your car. Okay, here's a fix-it ticket, and go on your way. You get pulled over for that light in your car, and you become confrontational and... and uh, and start behaving inappropriately and doing things you shouldn't be doing and reaching around in the car and acting silly, there's a damn good chance you're going to get hurt. Uh, the police officer doesn't know if you're reaching for a gun in that in that glove box, you know, when you weren't instructed to to do to move or you're not explaining what you're doing. You know, if you're behaving aggressively and and what have you and and uh, not cooperating, yeah, your your chances of getting hurt are a lot higher. Uh, and that's because that police officer wants to go home and see his family at the end of the day. He doesn't want you to reach in there and grab a gun and shoot him in the head, and that happens. It does happen a lot. More often than, than yeah. not. Unfortunately, you don't hear about that as often as you do other things. But 
So, do you think that there's a um, a difference between racism and bias? Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say that all human beings, to some degree or another, have a racial bias. And a racial bias is... It's actually... To say it's racial... It, certain people have more things in common with one another. If... Uh, if you had a room of 100 people who showed up for a speech or something like that, and there was no assigned seating, and in that 100 people, it was uh, 13% African-American and uh, some Hispanics, some Asian, and things like that. And as people went out and found places to sit, you would probably notice that there would be an area that would have more African-Americans than, than other areas. There'd be an area where Hispanic people would tend to gather, and Asians might tend to gather in one area, and Caucasians would wind up in another area. We'd actually, without any prompting, somewhat segregate ourselves. And you might look at that and go, God, that's racism. No, it's not. The African-American person is going to look at another person who looks like him, dresses like him, and assume that they have things in common. You may not know the person, but you feel more comfortable because you think you have things in common, something to talk about. Uh, whereas you might feel out of place with some, another group because you don't feel like you have as much in common. That's the bias. Uh, those Asian people have things in common. They're going to feel more comfortable with people similar to themselves who have similar interests and tastes. Uh, it, that's not a racism. That's just a, uh, just a bias, uh, a comfort you feel with people you have things in common. Now, if you take a group of military people and put them in with a group of a bunch of civilians, the military people are probably going to congregate together because they have that common background. Race doesn't have anything to do with it at that point because... The military is one of the most diverse groups of people that I've ever encountered. Uh, chances are if you had 10 military guys, there'd be uh, two African-American guys, a couple of uh, uh, Hispanic fellows, an Asian guy. You know, It's going to be a group of people, and they're going to hang out together because they have that common bond, that common background. Um, whereas in the civilian world, it's not as apparent or obvious unless it were... Uh, a trade show about, you know, for something that everybody has a common interest. You know, we're going to see lizards at a lizard show or something, and, <laughs> well, obviously we have something in common because we went to come see lizards. So, But uh, that's the bias, in my opinion. It's not it's not a conscious uh, objection to another race. It is simply uh, and a people question can, of comfort. People can form negative bias against another race just because of the, their experiences that they've... I wouldn't so much call that bias as, as uh, but I guess it's a good word as any. That that would go to the racist side and the levels of it. There's different levels of everything. What you might call a functional racist versus a, a full-blown skinhead hate monger. You know, you got people that take it to the extreme that, you know, if you aren't white, you ain't shit. You know, you should all die or go live somewhere else. Stay away from me. That's the the racist, the full blown hardcore racist idea. Then you got people who are are at various levels below that that are uncomfortable around people of a certain group based on a stereotype. Um, you may have had bad experiences with black people at some point in your life you know, as a Caucasian person. Let's suppose you found yourself in a large black neighborhood and got your ass beat and mugged and. That might tend to that'd be a little check in your head. Well, when I saw these people in this setting, I got hurt, so I'm not going to do that again. Well, that's and now you look at people that look like that and you assume in the same that way. they're the same way. They're going to cause that same problem. So you've had that bad experience. It doesn't help with the media, with movies, TV. You know, right? Uh, look at the gangbangers. You know, these guys they got they're dressing this way. They got these colors and all this stuff and. 
Anytime you see somebody that looks like that, you're assuming, oh, I don't trust that guy, you know. You see the Hispanic guy with the tattoos on his neck and the little teardrop, and you're probably going to assume that that guy maybe is involved in something you don't want to be around. Sadly, uh, stereotypes exist because there's a basis for it. Uh, if you see somebody with a bunch of tattoos, especially certain tattoos that are common gangs, the chances are pretty good that guy's probably involved with or has been involved with gangs at some point and might not be a person you want to hang out with you know, or be around. You might want to avoid that person because you don't know what that person is going to do and they may be prone to violence. And you base that on appearances, what you see. So now you could argue that this guy has these tattoos because when he was a kid he got involved with that stuff, but then one day he woke up and said, you know what, this is bullshit, I ain't doing this no more, I'm going to go straight and live a good life. But because he still has that appearance, you would be incorrectly judging that person because he's actually a good person. Yeah. And the only way that you can get around that is to take the time to get to know people. So, but Taking the time. That's the tricky part, you know, especially when there's a good chance that the person you're looking at might be a problem. So those stereotypes serve to protect us because we learn from what we experience in life. Uh, but at the same time, they can also blind us to, to good opportunities and good people. Uh, so there's a plus and a side, plus and a negative side to that. The word stereotype is often looked at as a, well, a stereotype. That's a racist thing. But you know, uh, I'm from the South. Uh, stereotype: Black people like fried chicken and watermelon. Guess what? Everybody in the South likes fried chicken and watermelon. I love fried chicken and watermelon. Uh, I guarantee you, that all my black friends did. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong. Watermelon's awesome. Fried chicken is fucking amazing. What's wrong with that? But it's a stereotype, you know. Well, it's based on some level of reality because fried chicken was cheap. So people in poor neighborhoods ate a lot of fried chicken because, and it's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. So whatever. Uh, it's a stereotype. Yeah. The tricky part is most racists, in my opinion, are racist because of ignorance. Ignorance and racism are hand in hand, in my opinion. There are exceptions. I mean, there's people that are just messed up, and there's nothing you can do to fix that. But a lot of people are racist because they have no experience with other groups. So they've never had a black friend. They never hung out with a black family or, or anything like that. So they don't understand that these people are human beings, just like you. They have the same wants and desires, and you know, you know they're trying to, to live a good life and, and, and take care of their family and things like that. But you've never experienced that. All you've got to base your opinion on is what you've seen on TV or what people have told you who might be the hardcore racist guy uh, or things you've seen on TV read in books or uh, news you know another gang violent incident you know in LA well I don't live in LA but I'm not going to hang around black people because they do that that's ignorance that's just straight ignorance uh, an excellent example it was a movie called American History X yeah. which I absolutely love that movie <laughs> yeah. Uh, this guy was a hardened racist with the Nazi tattoos and all this stuff and and he killed a man went to jail and got stuck working with a black man so you get this skinhead neo-Nazi uh, race monger here stuck working with a black man in the laundry and over a period of time uh, this guy actually managed to get to him and they became really good friends and totally changed this guy's attitude and he came out of prison uh completely a changed man with a totally different attitude because he learned from that man that that hey we're the same you know it's pretty interesting movie too because it, it tried to get you to see 
the past and how he got to that point. Right. Right? Because his father was a firefighter yeah. and he was killed. But his, his father, father was, was also a little bit of a racist. Well, not just a little bit. I think he was a pretty, actually quite a typical racist from back in those days. Uh, had a lot of anger. And, and there was a lot of anger and frustration. That, you know, there was a lot of things to bring some of that anger on. The government didn't help matters. You know, when you've got uh, programs like affirmative action and things like that, that I understand why the programs were created, and I understand the need to make opportunities for people to, to break out of, of uh poverty and things like that so I, I, one part of me I understand what those things were created for but at the same time you've got a program that basically allows somebody who's underqualified to get a job over somebody who's more qualified based on their race that has a pretty negative impact on the qualified guy who worked really hard to, to try to get this job who now can't get it because he was cut out by a black guy that didn't have the qualifications uh it seemed unfair. Now, why, you know, like I said, I understand the purpose of those programs, and I understand that opening up opportunities for people who didn't have those opportunities and didn't have the the opportunity to gain those skills and education, we're trying to get them out of that situation. So, I, like I said, I see the plus and side minus of it. But if you're the one that's impacted by it, you know, it's hard to uh, to see the positive idea behind it. Yeah. All you see is, well, I lost my job because... Some, they made this other guy or promoted somebody over me who wasn't qualified because they had to fill a quota. Uh, that happens a lot now. I mean, you got programs, uh, there's a big push, you know, with the feminism thing to uh, to add, you know, make sure there's more and more and more uh, females in the market. And, and again, fairness and equality, I'm all for it. But at the same time, it's hard to swallow that pill sometimes when you lose out because the company's forced to take on people based on their sex or race in order to comply with the government requirement. So that that does create anger with people. And there was a lot of that early on in, you know, in, in the desegregation era. You were talking the 70s and uh, 80s. There was a lot of that. And a lot of people were really angry about that. Yeah. Uh, maybe they weren't seeing the full picture or understanding or trying to appreciate what was trying to be accomplished. But in the end, it was impacting their ability to make a living. And they didn't like that. So, yeah, uh, his father was a racist, maybe what we call a functional racist, because <laughs> he could go to work and work with black people and not have an issue. He didn't kill anybody, but at the same time, he had a chip on his shoulder about black people and, and why they were given these opportunities and what he considered to be unfair. And, yeah, and that was very common back then. Yeah. And, of course, that built up with the son who carried it on to the next step and went beyond that. And then... The other factor was the guy that was running that little... Uh, oh, that uh, whole group, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. He, he had fed him full of stuff, you know. And it's easy to look at something like that and say, how could you possibly allow somebody to... A Jim Jones-type person yeah. who... But you know what? That sort of thing happens. People are very susceptible to suggestions sometimes, and if something comes along and it looks like they know what they're doing and they're... You know they're smart and they're they got good karma and all this, and you tend to want to follow. I mean, humans are followers a lot of us we're, we're group oriented we have our pack animals if you will and you are drawn or gravitate to that charismatic leader that that seems to have the answers you're looking for and then the next thing you know you're drinking kool-aid yeah. so you uh yeah. those things happen a lot i mean you look at uh what was that group i forget what they call them uh, heaven's gate that's right they, these are a bunch of tech kids these guys are uh these guys are web programmers and things like that you know they're not stupid 
but they got sucked in by that uh, that guy there, and and again they drank the Kool Aid, and <laughs> that's right. It, it happens a lot. The Waco, <laughs> that's another one. I mean, it, it happens. You know, humans are quite susceptible to that sort of thing, uh, and even people who think they're smart and would never be caught up in that. Things happen. I mean, look at the Democratic Party. <laughs> Not being a, I don't hate Democrats, and, and and they've had their good moments in life. And there are aspects of uh, the liberal mindset that I agree with, but there's also the extremism and and some of the crazy that's been going on lately that kind of makes you wonder who's drinking Kool Aid. <laughs> Or who's so, shoving the Kool-Aid down my throat? That goes back to, like I was saying earlier, people aren't paying attention to who they're voting for. Well, he looks good and he sounds good. I'm voting for that guy. You know, well, you mean he's never actually done anything and abstained from the vote while he was in the Senate and, you know, didn't uh, actually start any useful laws or anything, but now you want to make him president. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of the sense. guy didn't do anything for years and years, we're going to go ahead and make him president. Or let's say Joe Biden, the guy that actually voted on a, a number of racist uh, laws that uh, in today's world would be touted as Nazism. Uh, the guy that thought it was a great idea to start taxing Social Security, for example, he was actually there when they decided to start taxing Social Security. He was one of the proponents for that. He was. Uh, there's something that came up the other day that said that uh, a long time ago he tried to say that he got an education somewhere mm. and that he People started checking up on it. And oh no! I mean, I was mistaken. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't do that. Well, there was a lot of that. I mean, just the smoke and mirrors thing is a pretty common thing in politics, anyways. But he was he was involved in a lot of things in the past. Once again, people don't pay any attention to that. And look at Kamala Harris, yeah. district attorney in California, who kept black people in prison, even though she knew that there was evidence that they were innocent. Yeah. Well, now she's out there. Trying to save the world for, uh, you know, in her uh, newfound position. It's another person. I, I, I'm, I'm amused by her in a few ways simply because she was a presidential contender. So if she had such a great background and everything and was such a qualified candidate, then why didn't the Democratic Party vote for her during the primaries? But she actually lost very badly in the primaries to Joe Biden. And she accused Joe Biden of pretty much everything from. I mean, she might as well come out and call him a skinhead at one point. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, she's the vice president of Canada. And oh, now, and they love each other. And they just love each other. It's like, wow, that was a lot different not too long ago. But, uh, yeah, you know, I did. I keep hoping that, you know, I don't have to agree with everybody's theology or, you know, their political parties and everything. I just hope they do a good job. That's what I want. You know, I don't care if it's a Democrat, Republican, uh, a Libertarian, Greenpeace, or what? Yeah, what yeah maybe, not, maybe not Greenpeace. I've had dealings with them. <laughs> uh, libertarians, I like Libertarians. I'd love to see a Libertarian candidate actually have a fair chance, but uh, that's fine. Just do a good job. I don't care if you're black, white, female, fuck, a green man from fucking Mars. I don't care if you can do a good job and do good for our country and for our people. That's what I care about. I don't care if it's a female. Oh, I'd love to see a, a a really sharp Asian guy. I mean, there's you know, here we go with stereotypes, but Asians are pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we have a, an Asian candidate out there that that uh, isn't full of shit and might actually come out and do something intelligent. You and know. you know, there's a a thing right now where um, veterans are starting to group together 
to try to fix the government. Mm. Uh, what is her name? Uh, Tulsi Gabbard? No. I forget what her name is. I think it is Tulsi Gabbard. And then there's a guy in Texas, West, uh, Wesley, Wesley something. He's a senator in Texas, and he's talking about, uh, he's new to the position, I think he said, and that, uh, when he starts doing his stuff for the, being a senator, that he's going to try to reach out to other veterans to try to get like a roundtable, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a liberal, whatever, try to get in, get everybody together and use their, their military experience to try to solve problems. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Unfortunately, right now, our current leadership seems to think that the military is full of extremists. Uh, they seem to have this vision that somehow the military is full of racist extremists and they need to be weeded out. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't people like that in the military, but I'd say it's kind of rare. Uh, like one, I said, the 10%. Well, the one thing with the military, historically the military has actually been ahead of the game when it comes to to improving race situations and, and um, eliminating discrimination and, inclusive, and creating inclusiveness in the ranks. We've been ahead of society as, as uh, in general since World War II, at least, if not longer. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that it was instantaneous, but there were black people serving in the military and being accepted in the military long before uh, society was accepting black people in Caucasian neighborhoods or areas. Uh, the thing with the military is you're serving with somebody and you may find yourself in a, a combat situation or whatever and you have to depend on the people around you for your life. And the color of those people is irrelevant. It's the character of the people yeah. that are important. So you learn real quick that the people you're working with you have to depend on and they have to depend on you. And you kind of get over the whole who's white, black, brown, or whatever. Jewish, it doesn't matter anymore. Catholic, it's Protestant. It doesn't matter what you are. Uh, as long as you're there and you're doing your part and you're doing a good job, that's what we need. Is we need people to be uh, be uh, good at what they're doing and, and be good and honest, decent people. And the military has kind of forced itself to, to get into that a lot earlier. We're far more diverse than most, than most uh, companies are. Um, like I said earlier, if you take... Randomly grab ten people out of a military unit, and you'll you'll wind up with uh, at least three to four races in the process because there's such a wide variety. A lot of minorities are drawn to military service because it's an opportunity that might not have been available to them. It's an opportunity to get an education. It's an opportunity to learn skills, uh, and decent pay. Especially nowadays, they get paid a lot better than they used to in my day. Um, so a lot of people are drawn to it. So you have a, a higher proportion of of minorities in the military than you would in a lot of places simply because of that that draw you know the rich white kid probably not so interested in becoming an enlisted man because uh, he's already got money and doesn't really want to get shot at so yeah whereas a uh, a young african-american man trying to find a, a way to get the hell out of the ghetto the military looks pretty damn good so and it has done a lot of great things for a lot of people so i mean where else are you going to travel the or travel the world yeah on somebody else's dime. Yeah. Give you a place to sleep, food to eat, and a little money in your pocket, and an opportunity for education. Even if you don't go after the college part of it, just what you learn from day-to-day working in the military. There's lots of opportunity to uh, to expand your abilities. And when you come out of it, 
uh, employers tend to like veterans because we tend to be more reliable, dependable. We tend to show up for work on time because yeah. you know, we, we had to. <laughs> we don't fight with um, authority, authority figures. Much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a tough one for young people. I guess one a lot of young people have a hard time getting past is the, uh, the issues with authority, particularly in not here we go with stereotyping again, but I think it's a bit of a problem with certain cultures uh, have a real issue with authority more so than others. And that's where a lot of problems arise. I think it's where a lot of educational problems arise. Uh, I've said it before that when I was growing up, I had grew up in a Mexican neighborhood, so I had a lot of Mexican friends. I also had black friends who were great people, intelligent, smart, capable, awesome people. But what I learned was they did not perform that well in school because if they did, they would be ostracized by their own people. By their own people. Because they were cooperating with authority, and that is the worst thing you could possibly do. Being called Uncle Toms and exactly. stuff like that. Yeah. And so they were forced to not excel, even though they had the capability to do anything they wanted to apply themselves to. But they actually had to joke around and play around and, and fight against authority. Otherwise, they would be not accepted in their own culture. Uh, and I think that little aspect of, of African-American culture needs to be addressed because it actually, I think, leads to where a lot of the problems are. If, why, why is it that, I mean, there is no physiological difference between any human being. You know, your appearance, you know, your bone structure is a little off, your got skin color is slightly different. You still have a heart, lungs, liver, brains the same size. It all works the same way. Uh, being black or Hispanic or white doesn't make you smarter or, or dumber. It's it's a sum of the experiences and things you learn that make you that puts you where you are. And, you know, we have some of us have genetic gifts. There are people who are geniuses. You know, that were born with a certain combination of neurons that work better than most people's. But it's not specific or exclusive to one group. You know, there's genius. Uh, Indians, there's genius African Americans, there's genius Mexican Americans, there's genius whatever. Uh, it's not the skin color that makes you intelligent. It's it's your drive to learn, your exposure to information, and of course your genetic gifts. You know, if you you know, some people have issues that their mind just doesn't work as well as others. Some people work better at, in a certain way. That may not be addressed by traditional education. That's another subject. But, like for example, you find out in the military, some people suck at taking rating exams. And they don't do oh, good yeah. at taking tests. They're very intelligent and capable people, but they just don't do very well on a test. Uh, that's a. I'm not a psychologist, but it's a that's a learning issue. You know, it's an issue with the way they think. It doesn't make them less capable than anybody else. It just means that they have a harder time with that particular aspect of things. So. Back to my point is, is these cultural norms where authority is frowned upon and and anybody who becomes a police officer to try to have a better life, for example, is now a sellout. You know, you don't hear uh, these groups, racial justice groups, bemoaning the, the horrors and tragedies that black African-American police officers are suffering because once a African-American becomes a police officer, they basically become white because now they're... They're sold out. That's the way they look at it. Uh, it's sad. It's unfortunate because these people did that because they have an opportunity in their life and be able to support their family in a, in a, in a comfortable way. 
black business owners. Again, don't hear a lot of people crying about the businesses that were looted and burned and destroyed that were owned by minorities. But you don't hear these organizations, I'm not going to mention BLM, but uh, you don't hear them talking about that. They, they just don't care because, again, you're cooperating with authority, you're successful, you have money, therefore you're, yeah, you're not on our list. We're only interested in the, the criminals that the cops are pulling over. We're, we're concerned about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're worried about their rights, not not your rights. Uh, we're not worried about why black on black crime is such a huge issue in certain places. They don't care about that. They don't do anything about it. It's probably the number one cause of fatalities in the African American community. But these organizations that say that Black Lives Matter don't seem to address that. You know, I understand the value and importance, the concept under which BLM was created, but I don't think that they're focused on the on the right things, in my opinion. I don't think they really are concerned about the lives of black people. I think they're concerned about how much money they can make and how much media exposure they can get by jumping on these incidents. Police departments are a lot easier to sue than, than private individuals. <laughs> Absolutely. So, All right, sir. Uh, we just did an hour and almost 50 minutes. Yeah, it goes quick. It goes real <laughs> fast. Yeah. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, thank you for that. Well, I've always enjoyed ours. I, I think we are we're very like-minded in, in uh, a lot of these things. Just want to see a, a good world. Don't want our country destroyed, and want people to learn how to work together and get along. That's, that's, that's right. It's that's a whole exactly lot more fun being in life if you don't have to look over your shoulder and be worried every minute of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. Yeah. All right, sir. Uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Well, that's it for now. I want to be clear on something. No one person grows up the same. Everyone has their own opinion and how they come up with it. That's why I started this, so that I can understand you and your guide to your path. If we all have different strengths, then maybe, just maybe, we can learn from each other.